Go ahead and have a seat. It's good to see you. My name's Brad. Uh, quick poll. Who's, who's rooting for who this today? Do you guys know there's a football game? <laughs> Commercials. Okay. Nobody? No. Joe Burrow. Who said Joe Burrow? You're rooting for Joe? I have friends who are rooting for Cincinnati just because of the chili, because they have better chili than Los Angeles. I'm rooting for Cincinnati because the Rams beat my team. Yeah, that was a rough day, but great to see you all. I'm glad you're here. Hey, there, uh, I want to talk about a trend that we see in Scripture for a little bit. Let me get my notes to the right page. Uh, There's a trend that we see all through Scripture, and perhaps you've noticed it, perhaps you haven't, but we're going to have some fun and we're going to talk about it for a while. There might be some nerding out, so if if it gets kind of weird with it, just, just play along, nod your head, you'll be fine, don't worry, we'll get through this together. Okay, there is a trend in... Uh, have you ever noticed that when you read Scripture, especially through the Old Testament, that God asks a lot of questions? Have you ever noticed that? Not so much like, like our toddlers do about everything and why, but there is a whole to- a bunch of times, and I'll go through them all, we're going to study them all, uh, where God asks questions. And they're, it's strange, mainly and probably because we have this view of God called, and it's true, it's, it's a view of God called omniscience. You know what omniscience means? It means you know everything. My parents said they were omniscient, and they would know everything that I was doing. They weren't. There are still some things that mom has yet to discover, and dad probably knows because Jesus told him. But there's, there's the omniscient, where you know everything, all the things. This is what we talk about when God is omniscient. So it's a little weird when God starts asking questions, Right? It's one of those exercises where, I'm sure you've experienced, when it's annoying, where someone asks you the question they already know the answer to, and you're like, just, it's, therapists do this, I married one, right? And so they, they, they probe and they try to get you to answer these questions, and this is what God does in Scripture. Anytime he asks a question, I think he's generally trying to see what we think and, and how our thought process is going, but God knows every single one of the possibilities of our answer, yet he still engages his creation with questions. Uh, And it's not saying that God doesn't know, and I'll say it again, God's omniscient, he's sovereign, I'm not questioning that, but I'm thinking God asks these questions because he's genuinely curious. He knows every single answer that we could give, even the ones we don't give. He knows what the answer will be. Does that make sense? So is the chair blue? And we can go, yes, it's blue, and he would know the answer if we were to say, no, it's green. Even the answers that we didn't think about, God still knows those answers. And we could dive into this whole view of God for, I wrote 68 pages about it in seminary, but we can dive into this for a long time, but God knows a lot. He is omniscient, yet he still asks us questions. For example, in Genesis 3, he asks Adam, where are you? Does God know where Adam was? Absolutely. He's right in the garden where you left him. In Genesis 3, he asks Eve, what have you done? Well, she ate the fruit. God, you knew she ate the fruit. You're you're asking her, what have you done? In, In Genesis 3 also, he says to Adam, who told you about this tree and what you can do? And God knows the answer to that. In Genesis 4, he says to Cain, why are you angry? In Genesis 16, he asks Hagar, where are you going? In Genesis 18, he says to Abraham, where is your wife? Uh, in, in Genesis 32, he says to Jacob, what's your name? In Exodus 4, he says to Moses, what's in your hand? Also in Exodus 4, he says, who made your mouth? Which is kind of snarky. 
Uh, in Samuel, 1 Samuel 2, he says to Eli, why do you honor your sons more than me? In, in 2 Samuel 7, he asks David, when are you going to build me a house? In, a, in 1 Kings 19, he asks Elijah, when Elijah had ran away after defeating the prophets of Baal, he says, what are you doing here? Why are you on this mountain miles away from where I last saw you? What are you doing here? In Isaiah, and Isaiah is filled with a bunch of questions that are fun to look at. In Isaiah, he asks, who shall I send? In Jonah, he looks at Jonah after Nineveh was saved, and Jonah's a bit hacked off about this, and he looks at Jonah and says, why are you angry, dude? And then in Ezekiel, he, uh, he takes the prophet of Ezekiel, in, 30, in Ezekiel 37, he takes him to this old graveyard where there's a bunch of skeletons, and he says to Ezekiel, can these bones live? Now, there are a lot more. That's just through Ezekiel. We can go on and on and on. But the point is, these are questions that God is asking, and he knows the answer to. It's strange when you just scratch the surface of it. These questions, when you, when, when you read the text, they almost seem a little scary, as if God is trying to play that gotcha game with us, that he's trying to catch us in a lie. Like, we have to answer these questions correctly, or else he's going to zap us off the face of the planet, as if God is waiting for us to misstep. If we say the chair is not blue, he's going to be mad. It's kind of like the scene from Liar, Liar. Am I too old for Liar, Liar? We know this with Jim Carrey. He gets pulled over. We know this one. He can't tell a lie. I forget why. I didn't rewatch it. I just remember the scene. And the, the police officer comes up and says, do you know why I pulled you over? And Jim Carrey can't tell a lie. And he goes, well, it depends how long you were following me. And he goes, well, let's just take it from the top. And then Jim Carrey goes through this everything. I followed too closely. I ran a stop sign. I almost hit a Chevy. I, ran, I sped some more. I failed to yield at a crosswalk. Then I sped some more. I changed lanes in the intersection. I changed lanes without signaling while running a red light and speeding. And the cop just looks at him. We, uh, there's a funny story. Uh, Carrie reminded me of it last night, so I'm not telling a story without her permission. Uh, there was a season in Carrie's driving history where she had a lot of tickets. And one time she was coming home from a girls group in California and uh, she ran a stop sign. And where we live, the, the police officers really like to write tickets. There was nothing else to do in our town. And so they, they wrote her a ticket, and the officer comes up and, and says, do you know why I pulled you over? And Carrie goes, because I was text messaging. <laughs> Me. And, uh, and, and the, the, the officer goes, well, let's add that to the list. But, and he did it. He was kind. He wrote her a warning for the stop sign, which would have been good because it would have been her number of ticket in that time period. Insurance would have been really happy. But for many of us, we see God like that. Like he's uh, this uh, motorcycle cop with the radar gun waiting for us to slip up. And when, he, when we do mess up, he asks us the question and it breeds into us this idea of mistrust. How can I fully trust a God when we always think he's out to catch us? And the truth is you can't. Can you trust somebody that's going to use your words against you you start, to, you start to be very, very careful on the things that you say, how you say them, your body language when you say them, and you can't fully express yourself when you're constantly in this place of distrust. They're always going to harm you for the littlest things that you ever say. So when it comes time in our lives, when we're in crisis, at the times where we should be trusting God most, because of our view of God, that we have a hard time trusting Him, we end up incapable of trusting Him. Take the book of Job, for example. There's two, there's two chapters at the end of Job full of questions. And the questions aren't Job asking questions. Those came in the first 38 chapters. Now it's God's turn to speak. 
And he starts asking questions to Job. And he's trying to get to the heart of, of the problem that Job is trying to sort out within himself. Follow me a minute, it'll make sense. Every, every character in Job is asking the same question, can God be trusted? Is God kind? Is God worthy of being followed? This was the very first question we see in Genesis 1, where Satan walks into the courts, uninvited, walks into the courts of heaven and says, hey, God, can Job actually follow you? All Satan does is ask questions, right? And he says to God, can Job actually follow you if you don't bribe him with good things? Later, Job's wife starts asking those same kind of questions. And then Job's friends step in and start asking the same kind of questions. Why is God doing the, what he's doing? Perhaps he's angry with you and the distrust starts to, to breed and gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And if we weren't following God, would we be able to follow him anyways? Both of these pictures that we see in Job and what we have with God are incorrect views of God. They're the wrong pictures. And at the end of the book of Job, things, things don't ever make sense with Job, but we can start putting things in order, the items that we see in Job, we can start putting them in order, and we'll start to see a correct view of God, one where we can trust him. This last session of the book comes after all of the questions that Job raised, after all the questions that his friends raised, and God gets his turn. I counted them this week, and I lost count at 70. And I tried to count again, and I lost track at 70 again. God asked Job a list of 70 questions. Numbers are important in Scripture. Remember, you have 3, 7, 10, 70, 500, 1,000. These are numbers of perfection. God is asking him the perfect amount of questions in order to teach Job how to trust. We have a problem with trust with God. And it breeds from a lot of things in our lives, but most of the time it breeds from our idea that we're in control. We think that we can control things around us, and we can't. And the moment we start realizing that we can't control much, the better it'll be and the easier it'll be for us to trust. Job is misguided because he thinks, along with his friends, that he can manipulate God into doing what he wants to do. Now, before we look at these questions, let's discover the tone that's asked in these questions. When we see God questioning, we think God is this big, scary creature coming at us, but there's a difference here in these questioning. God is not being defensive here, and it's important that we read the voice tone. It's hard to get voice tone from Scripture. It's, even, it's like your text messages. How do you know if someone's mad at you over a text message? All caps? No, I have relatives that can't help but text in all caps, but or email in all caps. This is just it. So that's not a, a a thing. And so, how do we know that God isn't attacking? At worst, at, at worst, he he he's not attacking. At, at the worst thing we could do, I just totally butchered that line. But at worst, let me try that again. God is being, if anything, sarcastic with Job. And I can pick up on sarcasm. It's one of my love languages. But Job, God is using sarcasm, if anything, to get to the point and trying to reveal something deeper about Job, mainly his distrust, his ability or his inability to relinquish control. Uh, these questions come from a place of deep relationship, and, and here, here's what I mean. In, in the very first part of Job, if you have your Bibles, you can go back to Job chapter 1. Uh, it's right after the book of Esther. In Job chapter 1, 
uh, God and Satan are having a discussion. In Job 1.7, the Lord says to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan says, from roaming throughout the earth and going back and forth to it. Now, the word being used here is the word ana, which means a question. Uh, you want to say it? Just It's a, transliterated, it's A-W-N-A-W. So, ana. Oh, no, he's asking me a question. That's how I remember it, okay? Oh, no. Oh, no, it shows up in this conversation between Satan, and it's hostile. It's something that you say to an adversary. It's something that a lawyer would say to you uh, if you're on trial or in a deposition. It's searching for something. It's not a friendly type of question, which would make sense. It's God and Satan, and he's having a conversation, and so he uses the word ana. However, when God starts talking to Job in chapter 38, he says this in verse 3, brace yourself like a man. I said that to Judah the other day, my six-year-old. <laughs> Carrie said that wasn't a wise parenting move because he's six, and I told him to stand up like a man. I'm like, oh, yeah, sorry. But the word he's using here to question Job, he says, brace yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. The word used for answer here is not ana like he used in, with Satan. It's the word yada. You want to say that? Yada. You can do it. This side did it. This side's still sleeping. There's more coffee. Yada. Uh, we might look at it and go yada, like Seinfeld, yada, 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 right? This is what we think of. It's the word yada, which in this language is a much deeper, more relational way of knowing somebody. He's saying, answer me. I want to know you. I want to be close to you. I want you to be wise. I want you, I want to be skillful in the way. I want there to be a relationship here. And so he's approaching Job in a way saying, I want to see how you think. I want to help you. I want to be your friend. The word yada is also used in marriage relationships to know somebody in the physical sense. It's a closeness. It's an intimacy. It's not adversarial. It's rather intimate and it's inviting. So God questions us. He questions Job. He questions people all the way through Scripture. And what he's doing there, and he's not intending to crush us, his questions are rather inviting us into something, inviting us to a deeper look at the world, a deeper look at ourselves, and a deeper look at God himself. And this is what's happening here in Job 38 when it kicks off with all these questions. God is inviting Job to something. And there are streams of questions that God begins to ask Job, and every one of them, he's going to address this control issue that Job has. So let's look at a couple of them. Job 38.4, God kicks off his questioning. He says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. And if someone asked you that question, how would you respond? Uh, I wasn't here. You might be shaking. For the rest of the chapter, God kind of goes down this line saying, Job, you don't know anything about what's going on around you, do you? Do I consult with you, Job, when I hung the stars in the sky? Did I consult with you? Uh, do you even know about the stars in the sky? Or let's make it a little bit simpler here, Job. I'm going to paraphrase what's going on in the chapter. Do you know what happens to the dew in the morning? Do you know where that comes from? Do you know where I keep the rain? Do you know where it comes from? How about the wind? Do you understand where the wind comes from? Do you understand any of the ordinances of, of the powers of which this world was established? And these questions, and he switches from the cosmos, so he's saying, do you see this natural world around you? Do you know where that comes from? No. 
especially Job back then, he didn't have radar images that see the clouds come up from the sky. He couldn't answer these questions. He didn't know the answers to them. And so he's, he's broadening Job's perspective. And then he goes from the cosmos and the world around him, then he starts talking about animals. Do you know, in, in, in Job uh, chapter 39, he says, do you know where the mountain, mountain goats give birth? No. Do you watch the doe bear her fawn? No. Do you count the months until they bear? No. Do you know what time they give birth? He goes on and on. And about these animals, Job, uh, all these lovely animals, do you know why they do what they do? Do you know why birds fly, when they fly, how they fly? Do you have any idea about creation? Did you give the horse its power, Job? Do you know why we call engines horsepower, Job? I don't. But this is what he's getting to. This whole speech is broadening Job's perspective. Job has no answer to any of these. He doesn't know. And so what God is saying essentially is, Job, you don't know the first thing about creation. Maybe you ought to be a little less quick on the trigger to judge me or accuse me of doing anything wrong. There's a whole lot going around you that you will never understand and you aren't aware of. Now remember, he's not trying to put Job in his place, but he's trying to show Job his place. Job, you don't get this. God doesn't need Job's approval for the work that he's done. Job already believes in God's existence. So it's not apologetic trying to get Job to become a Christ follower or a God follower in this day. He's more broadening his perspective saying, I don't have to prove myself to you, Job. God is giving Job a bigger view of the world around him. Job, you don't know what's going on here. Your friends sure don't know what's going around here. But you've got to know this. You've got to know what you don't know. And you don't know much. And one of the biggest things that that you can know is that you are not in charge of this situation. So what happens when we realize we're not in charge? Put yourself in Job's shoes. Some of us go, oh no, I'm not in charge. How many control freaks are there around? Yes, I I can agree with that. And some of you didn't raise your hand. Okay, we're control freaks. That's why we have a song that says, Jesus, take the wheel, right? It's because we have our hands so quickly on that steering wheel that we want to control everything, and we think we know everything. And so, especially as Enneagram 8s, we think we know it all, and we want to control every situation. And God's saying, you can't. And once you realize what you can't control, the easier it's going to be. And it's terrifying to think about that but it's absolutely true. When you realize what's not in your loop, so to speak, what's not in your three-foot space of control, everything else that's outside of it goes, oh, I can't control what that driver is going to do three cars ahead of me. I can't control that they didn't use their blinker. I can't control that they pulled ahead of me. I can't control that. And when you relinquish control, when something terrible happens, when a crisis happens, you release yourself from guilt. And you're going, oh, I'm not in control of this, but I know someone who is. Even though we love to be in charge, we love to call the shots, we love to tell people where to go, where to sit, we love it. It's an innate desire in every single one of us. My six-year-old wants to control the three-year-old every single day. Caleb wants to control his stuffed animals. We want to control something. That's what we do. What person doesn't? We want to control our coworkers. We want to control the aging process that we're all going through. Did you know you're all aging? Okay. 
We want to control the animals. We want to control the environment. We want to control everything. However, the more we stop and observe, the more we realize we can't control it. And so what God does is he's building trust here with Job is he says, Job, look back at all of creation. Can you see that it's good? I did that. Do you see my track record moving forward? I did all of that. Do you think you can trust me and accept your ignorance and know that I know what I'm doing here? Trust me, Job. I'm onto something. I'm in control of this. You're not. Get back in your seat where you belong. It's going to be fine. First thing that we can do, the first questions that we can is know ourselves, know our limits. God asks Job, look at the world. Trust me, I know what I'm doing. The second thing, he's, he says you're not in control. The second thing that, Job, uh, that God asked him to do, the second line of questioning goes through Job. Do you even understand yourself, Job? And the answer is, do you understand yourself? No. Uh, if, you, if you think you do, you might for a minute and then something happens and you don't. We don't even understand ourselves. So God starts talking about these mythical animals known as the behemoth. I think we have a picture of what the behemoth they thought the behemoth looked like that. It's like a crazy dinosaur, hippo, anteater. <laughs> what would you say it looks like? A buffalo, right? A pig. It looks delicious. Okay. This is the behemoth. And so he, he says, Job, look at the behemoth, which I made along with you and feeds on the ground like an ox. So it might look like an ox, right? Now, a lot of people write a lot of things about these two mythical creatures that God mentions in Job 39 and 40. Uh, and we try to understand what they are. Some think it's a large hippo, an elephant. Behemoths were this. They were known entities in the ancient Near Eastern religions. They're recognized by their culture. Uh, however, the type of animal, and we'll get focused, some people tend to get focused on what these animals represent. Do they represent God? I don't think so. I think what God is doing is he's calling attention to the behemoth from here. He's a, this, this, it's this big animal, and he uses the behemoth in Job 41, to, or Job 40, to start to have Job look at himself. So Job is the behemoth here. Following me? Look what he says. Look at the behemoth in verse 15. Look at the behemoth which I made along with you. It feeds on the ground like an ox. What strength it has in its loins, what power and muscles of its belly, so it does a lot of sit-ups. Its tail sways like a cedar. The sinews of its, of its thighs are close-knit. I don't even know what that's about. Its bones are tubes of bronze. Its limbs are like rods of iron. It ranks first among the works of God, yet its maker can approach it with its sword. Verse 20, the hills bring, the, their, bring it their produce, and all the wild animals play nearby. 21, under the lotus plant it lies, hidden among the reeds in the marsh. The lotuses conceal it in their shadow. The poplars by the stream surround it. A raging river doesn't alarm it. It's secure. Though the Jordan should surge against its mouth, can anyone capture it by the eyes or trap or pierce it with the nose? And so what the writer's doing is he's, God is saying to Job, Job, you're like this behemoth if you trust me. When you learn to trust me, you can be strong like this. Look at this comparison. He compares it. I made it along with you. Again in verse 15, it's content and well-fed. 
as Job has been content and well-fed. God has taken care of Job. I made it strong, just like he made Job strong. It ranks the first amongst its kind, as do you, Job, or we can say, as do humans. It's cared for in verse 20. In verse 21 and 22, it's sheltered as we are. Verse 23, it's not alarmed by the raging river, and neither should you be, Job. It trusts in verse 23 and is secure, and you should trust and be secure. God, or I'm sorry, it cannot be captured or trapped in Job, neither can you. This is what God's trying to say to him. Verse 24, its nose or its anger is what we could call the nose, cannot be pierced. It's invulnerable. It's unstoppable. In all of the texts, the, the, we get confused that, that God is trying to say, you can't touch this behemoth, Job, but nowhere in these lines of Scripture does it say that Job is ever going to do something to the behemoth in the first place. Instead, God's drawing the comparison and saying, Job, you shouldn't be afraid of the behemoth. You should be like the behemoth. Be a behemoth. Sounds like a bumper sticker. For the longest time, when we get to this section, God, we think God is either talking about himself, like God's the behemoth, but that's not, that's not what's happening here. Behemoth becomes an example who stands firm when it goes through trials. It stands firm in faith and in trust when the river pushes against it. An animal who doesn't panic when the storms brew around it. God's saying, Job, be like this animal, an animal that doesn't waver in trust and resolve because it trusts in God when everything seems to be falling apart. And it is an example of stability and trust. It is perfectly shown in our world in the difference between big dogs and small dogs. You follow here? You have a small dog. What do small dogs like to do? Bark at everything, right? A leaf lands in the yard. A small dog goes nuts. How many of you are small dog owners? Great. Small dogs are wonderful for you. Small dogs try... The mailman comes, the small dog's yipping everywhere, a bird lands, a helpless little bird is in the yard, the small dog's going crazy. Everything is a threat to the small dog. Why? Because it's small. You know, we have the small dog syndrome with with some people who who think they have to fight everything or portray that they're bigger and are moved by everything. So the, the small dogs is oftentimes what we get into because we think we have to control and fight everything. Whereas if you walk next to a Rottweiler, and you're not in its space, the Rottweiler might go, what's up? And then go back to sleep. A Great Dane doesn't panic when a bird lands in its yard, right? I've never seen it. They're more confident. They don't get yippy. They don't try and pick a fight to prove their point. They're a big dog. They get it. They're secure. Be like the big dog. Nothing's going to harm you, Job. You're a behemoth. And, and so that's what God is saying to Job. Look, I made you. When you trust in me, you don't have to worry about all these little things going around, all of the crisis. You can place your trust in me and you can have the confidence of a Rottweiler or another type of dog that doesn't spook easy. You can be calm. You can take a nap in the middle of a rushing river. When the text talks about rushing rivers, that's another euphemism for trials that come and take you over. When the Jordan floods and takes everything away from you, you aren't moved. God says, you're a behemoth now, Job. 
And how do you act like it? When you trust in me, you don't have to worry about all of this. Trust me. The invitation to look at the world, see what God has done in the past, what he's going to do in the future. He takes care of things. Be like the behemoth, Job. This is you, a proper look of yourself. I've taken care of you. I made you this way. Why would I ever make you stumble in the, in the future? I have you, Job. Trust me. And the last thing that, Job wants to, that God invites Job to, the last invitation, is a picture of God. If the behemoth is Job looking at himself, the Leviathan, which is awesome, right? The Leviathan is a picture of God himself. God brings up this other, it's the same thing. The Leviathan was this elusive creature that we, that we see in, in ancient Near Eastern religions. This is something that Job would have been uh, mindful of. This is a picture of what Leviathan might look like. Anyone want to mess with Leviathan? No, right? It's not as cute as the behemoth. Maybe that's the point. But God is saying, look, you have a picture of you. Now let's look at me. And this is a large swath of scripture. It's in Job 41. We'll, we'll go through it quickly. Can you, Job pull in the Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down its tongue with a rope. Remember that picture? Do you think you can catch that thing with the fish hook? No. Can you put a cord through its nose and pierce its jaw with a hook? So in other words, can you, can you tame this thing? Not at all. Will it keep begging you for mercy? Will it speak to you with gentle words? Remember that picture? Do you think that thing begs for mercy? No. Will it make an agreement with you for you to take it as its slave for life? Can you make it your pet? like a bird or put it on a leash for the, for, for the young women in your house? No. Will traders barter for it? Will, they divide up it? will they divide it up among its merchants? Can you fill its hide with harpoons or its head with fishing spears? If you lay a hand on it, will you remember the struggle and never do it again? No, because you'll die, right? Any hope of subduing this thing is false. The mere sight of it is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse it. When it. Who is able to stand against me? Who can calm, who can claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. Did you see the, the switch in language that is used here? It goes from Leviathan, Leviathan, Leviathan. And then God finally shows his cards and goes, I'm the Leviathan, Job. Can you tell me what to do? You can't control anything. You're scared at a leaf that lands in your yard. Do you think that you can tell me how to live my life, Job? Sometimes it's taught that God is, is uh, saying that how he defeats Leviathan. However, this passage is more of a picture of God himself. God is saying to Job, you can't control Leviathan. Likewise, you can't control me. And so God seems to be this God seems to give another invitation. Job, you can't control me, you can't defeat me. Your only option here is to trust me. Let's look at some of the comparisons here for, for Leviathan. It cannot be controlled, it will not submit or beg mercy, it cannot be wounded. Uh, there's they cannot rouse him, so who can stand against him? No one has a claim against against the Leviathan. It, you cannot force his a mouth to open to receive a bridle, so you can't ride it like a horse. It's dangerous when riled, as, as is God. It's invulnerable, as is God. No creature is its equal. God has no equals. It dominates all who are proud. Uh, it, no one could subdue it. And God is the king of the proud, and no one rules over him. So what's the point of this? You can't control God. So stop trying. 
You can't domesticate God and make him into whatever you want him to be as if he's some sort of pet. And we try and do that. This is the nature of idolatry. This is what happened at the foot of Mount Sinai with the, with the people of Israel. They're scared. They don't know what's happening up on, the, up on the mountaintop. Moses has been up there for like weeks. It's been a matter of days, but they think he's gone forever. They think he's died. And so they, they're afraid of God. And so they don't think they can trust him. And they, they want a God that they can put in their pocket and control. And, God, and so they build what? They build an altar of a God that they can subdue, a God that they can digest. And God looks down and goes, what are they doing? You can't control me. You can't make me into an idol. God's questions to Job show us this. We need to trust that we can't control what God is doing. We can't make God our own. We can't make God into our own image as if he's our pet. God is God. And it seems overly simplistic, but it's true, especially when we go through our suffering. Our suffering will oftentimes make little sense, and the more we try and figure out and tell God what he's doing with our suffering only show us the fact that we have no control over the situation we're in. And our only other option, as we've learned in the past two examples, is to trust. Suffering should be viewed as an opportunity, rather, to deepen our faith and spiritual maturity as we look forward to understanding what God's purposes are rather than a backward attempt to tell God what his purposes are. Of course, suffering will shape us. What varies is whether the suffering will break us or not. Your suffering will either allow you to trust in God more, which should be the point, or your suffering will push you further and further away from God. Sometimes there is no visible silver lining to our suffering. There's no redeeming value in sight. Sometimes those who endure a difficulty feel that nothing is left of them but an empty, empty shell. Some people never recover physically or emotionally or spiritually from suffering. Suffering sometimes has no answers. And this is what we were getting at when we kicked off the book of Job. Sometimes you'll have no reason why you're going through the, what you're going through. And we have to become okay with that. One author says this, that our crises drag us more or less kicking and screaming into a fresh, vivid awareness that we are not in control of our circumstances, that we are not quite whole, and that our days are salted with affliction. However, that when we go under, undergo these trials, the biblical way that we should go through them is to pray for strength and carry on and carry on ourselves well. We should seek to honor God with our lives. We should seek to trust God with our lives. We should strive to trust him even when our hope is gone. In our times of confusion, in our times of suffering and crisis, what we can learn from the questions that God asked Job is God is not only able, uh, able to sustain us in the midst of the trials, he's also able to give us the strength. He calls us a behemoth. You have the strength to get through this if you trust me. We please and honor God through our crises by having faith in him. We are able to find purpose in our trials, as James says, if we have trust in what God is doing. The invitation is in, in every trial we go through. Are you going to trust him in this? Are you going to take up the invitation to follow God a little bit closer? 
Are you going to lay down the control of your situation and give God the wheel, as Carrie Underwood said, and let him drive you through this? Are you going to give up your independence for dependence? Our suffering, like God's question, is that invitation. And we see this invitation not only in, in the questions God's asking, but in the examples throughout Scripture. Moses is standing at the corner of the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army is coming down the cliff. The Red Sea is behind Moses. He and all of the millions of Israelites are standing there, and they're dead in the water. And Moses has no control of the situation. He can't do anything. And he's trying to put on a brave face, as any leader does. And, and, and so Moses goes, and he, he's trying to calm the people down. They see Pharaoh's army, and then he goes behind a tent, it looks like in the text, and, and he goes to God and goes, God, what the heck is going on? You told us that we were, going, we were going to be free. You told us you would do this. And God looks at him and says, trust me, I'll fight for you. And then he gives this command to Moses. He says, here's what you need to do. Watch. Just watch. Watch what I do with the Egyptians after this. And then this pillar of fire comes down and separates them. And all Moses can do is go, cool, I'm going to watch this. And then they cross the Red Sea on dry land. And then they get to the other side and they look back and here come the Egyptians. And then the sea closes. Did Moses do any of that? No. God simply said to Moses, watch. The Proverbs or the Psalms say this. Be still. Be still in what? No. What's the word for no? Yada. Trust. Be still. Know that I am God. And then I'll fight your battles. We see this in the life of Jesus. There's a Roman centurion who even says, I'm used to controlling situations around me. I tell people to go here. I tell people to go there. And they follow me. Why? Because I have this rank. And I'm in charge. And he comes to Jesus and he says, my, my daughter's sick. And they say that, that she's not going to get well. And Jesus goes, cool, um, uh, let's go to your house. Let's fix it. And then the centurion goes, no, 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 no. You don't need to come to my house. Perhaps he hadn't cleaned. But he's like, you, you don't need to come to my house. All you have to do, Jesus, is say the word. And I know that she'll be healed. And Jesus is awestruck, right? Caught Jesus off guard. That's the day that Jesus was surprised. What? And Jesus says, I haven't seen faith like this from anyone in Israel who should have faith like this. It took a Gentile, a Roman soldier, the occupying force to show this kind of faith, this kind of trust, that God is trustworthy. Now, I don't know what kind of trials every one of you are facing. I know of some in the room, and there's a lot, and it's normal. We're all going through something. The encouragement we get from this is not a God who's sitting up on the throne like the cop on the side of the road and waiting for us to screw up that we got the question wrong. No, he sees the, the, the bad, the evil going on in the world. He knows about it. Did he author it? No. God is not the source of evil. It's a topic for a whole other conversation. But God says in the midst of the evil, you can trust me. You can stand strong like the behemoth. 
You can trust me. You don't have to control me. I'm uncontrollable. Look what I've done in the past. Look what I'll do in the future. And place your, give me the control and place your trust on me. Would you pray with me? Father, I, you know the hearts of what's going on with everyone in here. Uh, you know the trials that we're all experiencing. You know uh, probably better than we do what we're thinking, what we're afraid of, what we're, what's going to happen tomorrow on Tuesday. You know it. And we're sitting here shaking in our boots about it because we want to control the situation. But over and over in Scripture, Lord, you prove yourself to us by saying we don't have to have control over the situation. We can't control the situation. But you show us over and over and over again who does. And it's not us. And so, Lord, in these next few minutes, uh, will your spirit keep working in our hearts as we release the control? And as we release the control, may your peace invade those places. The peace that Paul talks about that surpasses all understanding, that gave him the ability in the midst of his shipwrecks and, and death warrants and everything else that Paul came against. He gave you the control. And he said, in the middle of all of those, I can have peace. Because I know who's running the ship. And I can't control him either. So God, may we have a proper view of ourselves. A proper view of your past and your handiwork. And a proper view that you will always take care of us. You care about birds. You care about us. And we need not to worry. It's in your name we trust.